Hey, welcome to the Seattle Psychiatrist Interview Series. This educational series is brought to you by Seattle Anxiety Specialists. Located in downtown Seattle, our psychiatrists and therapists specialize in treating anxiety, anxiety disorders, and other mental health issues that commonly lead to anxiety. For a full list of our services, as well as access to our multitude of online resources, check us out online at seattleanxiety.com. Today, I'm Dr. Jennifer Gahari, Administrative Director at Seattle Anxiety Specialists. I'd like to welcome with us psychiatrist David Neubauer. Dr. Neubauer is Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Johns Hopkins University. He's an expert in the field of sleep medicine and has written several articles on the topic, including Understanding Sleeplessness, Perspectives on Insomnia, and Pharmacologic Approaches for the Treatment of Chronic Insomnia. Before we get started, can you please let us know a little bit more about yourself and what made you interested in studying insomnia? Sure. I guess going back to my prehistory, um, I just always was interested in the brain and the mind as a teenager even. And I used to cut out articles out of uh, magazines um, about all sorts of you know, brain-related activities. And so I came upon articles about sleep, and this was a long, long time ago. Uh, And so I remember cutting these articles out um, of these young sleep researchers who decades later, you know, I I actually got to know uh, later on. Um, In any case, I guess my interest in sleep was sort of latent for a while. I went to college, um, got interested in lots of different things, uh, anthropology in particular. So I got a master's degree in anthropology down in Florida, decided I would work towards a PhD. So I came up to the Northwest. So I went to Vancouver. I studied at University of British Columbia for a year. And and despite the fact that it was heavenly and I was really interested in what I was doing, uh, I sort of switched gears at that point and decided that I would go to medical school. And uh, so I learned a lot there. And uh, when I was doing my psychiatry rotation that just sort of fit well with me considering my social science background. So did a psychiatry residency. And that was where my interest in sleep really blossomed more because there was interesting research going on about sleep architecture and how it related with mood disorders. And so that really captured my interest at that time. And I broadened that to a a, a bigger interest in the mechanisms and regulation of sleep, and then onto the whole spectrum of sleep disorders, and and really finally into uh, sleep health for for everybody. So I've become sort of an evangelist for sleep in a lot of different settings, uh, academic, uh, writing, lecturing, but uh, a lot of other activities, for instance, through the National Sleep Foundation, of which I'm on the board of directors. So we do a lot of uh, public or oriented activities. Fantastic. (laughs) Um, So I presume that that most people at some point in their life have had difficulty sleeping. And what actually defines having insomnia as opposed to just having difficulty sleeping or trouble sleeping throughout one or two nights? Well, you're exactly right that, you know, everybody has trouble sleeping at some point. You know, fortunately, our sleep-wake cycle is very robust and works well for us. But sleep uh, is sort of the the final common pathway to 
you know, all sorts of different types of disturbances. So, you know, we're all vulnerable to a bad night here and there. When it goes on for a longer period of time, we may meet the criteria, uh, you know, re reaching a certain threshold to be diagnosed with an insomnia disorder. There are several different categorizations of sleep disorders. Um, the two current main ones are the, in the, the DSM-5. Uh, there's also one in the sleep community, which is the International Classification of Sleep Disorders, and that's the third edition of that. And fortunately, the diagnostic criteria for insomnia disorder are very similar for both of those. So first, you have to have the sleep problem, and that needs to be the complaint of difficulty falling asleep, staying asleep, waking up too early. So, but in addition to that, there have to be some daytime consequences or impairment that might be associated with that. And so that could be fatigue, uh, irritability, you know, complaints of uh, cognitive difficulties, um, uh, impairments in productivity, whether it's work or school or family life. Um, you know, for a lot of people, it just evolves into a, a worry about sleep itself that sort of lingers throughout the daytime. So that may be part of it. So you have the nighttime complaint, daytime consequences. Mm -hmm. Then you have to have a, a good opportunity for sleep. So it's not insomnia, not getting enough sleep because you're staying up too late and getting up too early, or if you're sleeping in an environment that is very unfriendly for sleep. So you have to have adequate um, opportunity and circumstances. Then you have to have the frequency in terms of the criteria because they always do that. So it has to be at least three nights a week. Uh, and the duration is this going on for at least three months. Now, the patients that we see, you know, more likely three years or three decades in some cases, but so it has to be a persistent problem. And it shouldn't obviously be due to some other disorder. Um, for instance, you know, sleep apnea may cause disruptions in, in sleep or some other medical conditions or, you know, a, a pain disorder um, or use of a substance or medications that might be causing it. Now, you might have, um, you know, comorbid conditions. You might have insomnia disorder along with sleep apnea, but it shouldn't be, you know, obviously due to that. All of that puts put together pretty much defines uh, insomnia disorder. So that's what's setting it apart from the bad night here and there that any of us might feel when we have bad news or even excitement. You had mentioned uh, pain disorder and I recently read some research which uh, regarded the link between poor sleep and the inflammatory response, um, inflammatory response, chronic pain and depression. And can you explain what is exactly happening in that regard about that link and how someone with those symptoms could possibly break this cycle? So I'm not sure that, that we fully understand the relationships, but we know that the poor sleep often is associated with increased inflammatory markers that go along with a lot of other conditions. So uh, particularly with chronic pain, there's a very strong relationship with sleep. And it's rather interesting even for people who don't have pain conditions, if they are deprived of sleep in experimental circumstances, their pain is worse the following day. So there are particular standard measures of pain, you know, how long somebody can be subjected to a certain amount of heat or, you know, how long they can have their hand in a uh, bucket of ice water. And people who are sleep deprived, and again, this is any of us, 
um, have, a, have a, a greater pain response. So imagine those people who have a pain disorder that interrupts with interrupts their sleep. Well, their pain experience can be even greater the next day. So it can be really a downward spiral for their misery, you know, throughout the daytime and, and nighttime as well. And you mentioned depression. So huge amount of comorbidity. It's very much a, a two-way street. You know, people who are depressed very likely are going to have some disturbance in their sleep. And people with chronic insomnia have a greater risk than for developing a depressive disorder, actually anxiety disorders as, as well. A lot of our clients come to us with comorbid uh, insomnia and depression. So we, we do see that a lot. I'm not at all surprised. Yeah, uh, unfortunately. Um, as your research touts, there are some pharmacologic approaches to treating to treating insomnia, and generally how effective are prescriptive medications against insomnia, and are they usually good for short-term or long-term use? So uh, the answer is all of the above. Okay. So, um, you know, all of the medications, at least those that are approved by the FDA for treating insomnia, of which uh, there are quite a lot, there are benzodiazepine receptor agonist hypnotics, um, there is a melatonin agonist, there is a histamine receptor antagonist. There are two orexin receptor antagonists, all specifically approved for treating insomnia. Mm -hmm. They have different characteristics, different pharmacology, different pharmacodynamics and pharmacokinetics, meaning that um, you can sort of customize what might work for somebody best and not somebody else. Mm -hmm. Some are good to help people fall asleep. Some are good to help them stay asleep after that. So you know, all have gone through a huge amount of testing. And so under those circumstances compared with placebo medications, you know, they're statistically better and people report uh, better results with them. Out in the real world, you know, things vary quite a bit because people have different lives, different comorbidity, other medications that they might be taking. Um, and so any of these medications may be beneficial. Some of them are approved for short-term use. And um, several of them really don't have any limitation on the duration of use. So it's very customized. I think a lot of people coming in with severe insomnia, you know, may benefit from a medication for a short period of time, maybe transition to intermittent use uh, under periods of time where there may be, you know, increased stress and maybe that can sort of cut short the, the um, progression of insomnia. So it's not going to uh, get worse and worse. And there are some people who use these medications long-term and for those people that may be appropriate, uh, especially when they're being well-monitored. I mean, they certainly should be uh, if they're getting continued prescriptions for a, a sleep promoting medication. But as I say, you know, it varies quite a lot. Fortunately, we have a, a wide variety of medications. I do want to say, though, that, you know, we never turn to a sleep medication first. You know, we always do it in a much broader context and want to make sure that people are following good sleep habits uh, as a foundation of treatment. And of course, there's cognitive behavioral therapy as well. Uh, which is well supported for treating insomnia and disorder. So I don't want to suggest that this is the treatment for insomnia, but it can, can play a, an important role for some people. Nice. In terms of other treatments, you mentioned cognitive behavioral therapy. 
Are there other maybe natural ways that people can use to try to combat insomnia um, that other ways that can help restore sleep? Absolutely. So I'd like to emphasize the importance of the infrastructure that supports our sleep. You know, I'm all for uh, roads and bridges and ferries and, uh, you know, all those other um, social supports that, that we need to function well as a society. But for our sleep-wake cycle, it's important to pay attention to the fundamentals, to those processes that regulate sleep. Uh, we have a circadian system that, that uh, under normal circumstances, you know, is very effective in promoting sleep at nighttime and uh, wakefulness during the daytime. It interacts with a homeostatic process. So these two working together help us out. But there's, you know, we need to do our part as well. And so, you know, people with insomnia disorder, this is really important, but really for the, the entire population, people who want to maximize the, the benefits of good sleep should be following pretty basic rules. So um, the first one is going to bed, which is important because people tend not to. People stay up too late doing whatever, you know, doing things on their phone or watching TV or other computer things. Um, we can usually we would be able to fall asleep a lot earlier than the time that we actually get into bed and turn out the lights with the intention of, of falling asleep. So you got to go to bed and should be leaving sufficient time to, to get enough sleep. We should be active in the daytime outside if possible. Um, you know, sunlight is a good thing to, to um, help with the robustness of our circadian system, exercise, other physical activity. But we should wind down in the evening. Um, part of the reason is that we should just, you know, have a relaxing routine to transition into sleep rather than scurrying about and turning out the light and instantly expecting to be able to fall asleep. Uh, but also because we want our natural processes to work for us. So melatonin is, is one example. So melatonin plays a really important role in facilitating our ability to fall asleep. So normally, you know, we produce melatonin from our pineal gland and it's, our level is very low throughout the daytime, but it gradually uh, rises in the evening for a period of two hours or so as our bedtime approaches. And then it plateaus during the night and then comes down um, by the next morning. And it's a cycle that repeats itself night after night after night. Well, in the evening, if we have a lot of light uh, from our room lights, from our phones close to our eyes, or all, all sorts of other sources, we're actually suppressing our melatonin. And therefore, we are depriving ourselves of that natural process, again, which facilitates um, our ability to fall asleep. What, what melatonin does is when it's rising, it interacts with particular receptors in our suprachiasmatic nucleus. And those are the ones that really help us out in the evening. So we typically are the most awake and alert in the early evening than any time throughout the whole 24-hour cycle, which, which kind of makes sense because otherwise, if we didn't have our circadian clock doing that, from the time we get up in the morning, we would be progressively sleepy right up until the time we fall asleep and then sleep and reverse that and then do the same thing every day. But, but it's not the case. We are able to be alert and functioning for 16 hours or so during the daytime and evening and then sleep 
eight hours or so during the nighttime. But part of the reason that we're able to keep going through the evening is because our circadian system is promoting maximum arousal at that time. Now, it's, you know, the exact time depends on the individual, and it might be seven or eight o'clock in the evening. But when melatonin is rising, it's interacting with those receptors and decreasing that arousal signal, leaving that background sleepiness from the homeostatic process that's been building up from the time we woke up in the morning. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I emphasize that, that melatonin really has a, like a permissive role. It facilitates sleep onset. It really doesn't, it's not sedating in and of itself. It just allows sleep to occur. And so I tell people if they're interested in using melatonin, I say, try your own melatonin, you know, avoid lots of light in the evening, particularly the blue end of the spectrum. But even then, um, you know, the, the apps and filters and glasses that people wear to block out the blue spectrum, that's really pretty limited. And uh, I think, you know, relatively dim light and going to bed relatively early is the way to go to help maximize the, the, the ability to sleep. You had mentioned eight hours is what people should receive in, in order for to get a good night's sleep. Is that the standard that everybody should get? Or is that, because I think everybody has heard that growing up throughout their lives. Is that really the standard or is that in debunk or is everybody individual? Well, there is a lot of individual variation, but most people who are on the lower end of that variation who are saying, oh, I'm fine getting five or six hours of sleep really aren't. Uh, and that, that eight hours is a good number. You know, if you're not getting that much every night, um, shouldn't be too anxious about it. Uh, and it really depends on how you're feeling during the daytime as well. The guidelines from organizations like the National Sleep Foundation, uh, also from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine for adults are recommending uh, seven to nine hours of sleep. And that's based upon review of just a huge amount of research. So we really don't want to cut ourselves short on sleep because there are so many health benefits of, of, of sleeping. You know, people tend to think, well, you know, I'll sleep later. I'll sleep when I die, um, whatever. Okay, but, you, know, you, you want to, you know, um, age well and uh, decrease your risk for chronic diseases that may go along with sleep deprivation. And you may be aware that there have been a lot of health headlines in recent years about discoveries of the role of sleep in helping to minimize the risk for Alzheimer's disease. Yeah. So it turns out that while the brain doesn't have a lymphatic system like the rest of the body, which helps to um, you know, move fluids and sort of re recycle um, fluids in the body, they're, they're, that's not in the brain, but there is something that's been called the glymphatic system. And so while we are asleep, our cerebral spinal fluid um, is able to sort of um, wash away the, the, the toxic byproducts of reactions in our brain. And, you know, our brain is one of the most active organisms in the body, probably the most, and all of those um, neurotransmitters being recycled and other neurochemical reactions that are occurring have, have byproducts that need to be washed away. That's happening best during sleep. And there, there's, there are both you know, laboratory studies as well as epidemiologic studies supporting this conclusion that sleep has an important role in helping to 
wash away things like beta amyloid and the tau proteins that are associated with Alzheimer's disease. So, you know, it may not be the answer, it may not be the most important factor, but it is a factor. And for that reason, you know, we, we shouldn't be trying to minimize our sleep so we can be doing other things because all the other things we want to do in our life are going to be better with a well-rested brain and body. Um, have you found that people are reporting worsened sleep patterns since the pandemic began? Or is this one area that COVID-19 actually has not had much impact? Well, you know, if you think about how people's lives have been affected by the pandemic, um, you know, it's um, easy to think about how sleep is affected. But, you know, there are so many sort of uh, life trajectories that people have experienced as a result. So on the one hand, you have those people who are the first responders on the front lines, working in hospitals, working in ICUs, incredibly stressed, not just because of the, the patients that, that they're dealing with, but also with the hours uh, that they have. Um, so those individuals you know, clearly um, have a tremendous amount of stress and anxiety and, and sleep is worse for them. On the other hand, I talk to people who tell me um, that the pandemic has been like a blessing for them because they're getting more sleep. If they're working remotely, you know, they don't have that hour commute in frustrating traffic. Mm -hmm. People working from home um, tell me that, uh, you know, not only are they able to get more sleep, but they're able to get outside more. They can take a break. They can walk outside. They can exercise or more flexible with their schedule sometimes. And so, I'm just as likely to hear from people that they're sleeping better than, you know, as opposed to those people who are, you know, right in the middle of, you know, much more stress associated with the pandemic. So there are so many different stories that people have and so many different ways that their sleep has reacted. Yeah. Okay. Um, in my own experience, because I think we all have a story to tell. I found that even minor hypoglycemia at night can lead to a type of anxious feeling and the subsequent inability to sleep. And this is usually mitigated by doing something as simple as eating a granola bar, um, which I found out the hard way, but I found it. So that was, that was good. So I'm curious, how common is this phenomenon of hypoglycemia at night leading to insomnia or lack of sleep? Um, and is there a better way to mitigate this and, and lessen the problem from happening? Yeah. So I'm not sure that, that I have the answer for you uh, okay. in terms of, you know, what um, pattern of sleeping and eating is, is going to yeah. work best for you. You know, it does make sense that hypoglycemia can elicit a sympathetic response that's very alerting and could easily wake you up. And so, you know, it's nice that you found a, a solution for that. So uh, clearly... Um, that makes sense. And some people with diabetes, um, with the, with, if their insulin levels and uh, dosages are, are not you know, prescribed optimally, you know, may dip down and have very severe hypoglycemia during the night and rather dramatic awakenings associated with that. So it is a phenomenon. Um, you know, one thing that I do advocate for people is you know maximizing the robustness of their circadian clock 
And so clearly sort of the behaviors that we've talked about, you know, getting outside and being active and winding down early in the evening, all of that's really good. It turns out that um, it's further enhanced by the timing of eating. And so there's a lot of literature out now about time-restricted eating, um, usually meaning big breakfast, smaller lunch, smaller supper, and then stopping eating. So you have just a zone of, of eating and then fasting during the rest of the evening and, and until the next morning. And, you know, that's a very potent in helping to reinforce our circadian system. And uh, probably, although there's not much literature to support it yet, probably has a very positive effect on, on sleep as well. It does appear that not eating for a few hours prior to going to bed is a good thing that has a positive effect on sleep. And there's recent literature showing that there are um, metabolic reasons to avoid eating close to bedtime as well. And, you know, traditionally the sleep hygiene lists would all say, well, have a bedtime snack and uh, maybe you'll fall asleep better. And uh, so I've taken that off my list because we have a more negative metabolic response as the evening goes on, especially around the time that melatonin is starting to come up. And so we know that people who have a particular meal in the morning say eight o'clock in the morning, if they have that identical food at 8 p.m., they're going to respond differently and have a larger glucose response and a larger insulin response, which is kind of what happens when people have prediabetes. So we all get a little prediabetic in the evening. And so it's good to avoid eating mid to late evening. So, you know, cutting off meals, you know, early in the evening and not eating anything after that is probably optimal for our circadian system, probably for, for sleep as well. I don't know what that means for your cycle, but uh, I, I think Maybe it's try. good advice for a lot of people. Yeah, thank you. Um, so as a prominent psychiatrist specializing in sleep medicine, do you have any other advice or recommendations that you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, I'll just go back to the, the concept of the infrastructure and, you know, a, your, your own body has regulatory mechanisms that 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 control the sleep wake cycle and you know as as humans in our society we tend to mess with all of that and um you know we're up and doing things at all different hours and we have uh you know we have lights electric lights and we have all these other electronics that can interfere with our sleep wake cycle uh we live in a 24-hour society and can go online and or, you know, go out to stores, some, you know, at all hours as well. So just trying to, to go back to our, our natural rhythms is, is really what I, what, what I preach. Perfect. Thank you, uh, Dr. David Neubauer, uh, John Hopkins. Uh, thank you again for reaching out and helping us with this project. And um, hope to speak with you again in the future. That'd be great. This has been a pleasure. Thank you.